The person who is so sure that they are saved to live a life that is careless or reckless, showing a lack of consideration for biblical truth, choosing to live contrary towards the scriptures, is playing with fire. Whether he or she will be saved is in grave danger. Therefore, it is well to review or to look again at this subject of salvation that we may learn to treasure it and what we have received and put it into everyday life into practice. Salvation emphasizes, and this is what salvation truly emphasizes, the glory of God and therefore the Christian is to take their salvation very seriously. You cannot say that you're saved and totally live contrary to the word. That's like being a police officer and the biggest drug dealer at the same time. That's trying to be a judge over people and yet you're the biggest crook running around town. That's like trying to play the role of a husband while you're dating 10 other women. It doesn't work. Salvation is to be understood through the teaching of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. If you're not in Scripture, you're not going to understand salvation. If you're not studying the Word of God and you're not in the Word of God and you're not allowing the Word of God to penetrate your life, all you're doing is saying to people in order to satisfy them that you're saved and in reality you may not be saved. And the only two people who will know that, the only two individuals who may know that is God and you. We've come to a place where we say things to please people. We say it to our parents, we say it to our wives and husbands, we, we say it to our relatives. Yeah, I'm saved, I'm saved. But then, as one person wrote, is there enough evidence in your life to really prove that you're saved? If we were to put you under a 24-hour watch, would there be enough that could come back and testify, that person's really saved? We used to laugh at holiness people. But the thing about holiness people is, yes, they set themselves aside. Women wouldn't even press their hair. The dresses were down to the ankles. They wouldn't wear any lipstick. Now, what a whole lot for the men to do, other than the men didn't smoke, didn't chew no tobacco, didn't change women. And they were holy. But there was a distinction about them. There was something so plain about them. They wouldn't even listen to the music of the 60s. They wouldn't listen to certain rock and roll type music because they were holy. What is it that marks you as being saved? Other than you just say them, you're saved. If somebody looked at you for just 10 minutes, could they say that you were saved? 
Just watch you for 10 minutes. Could they really say that you're saved? Salvation has to be understood through the teaching of Scripture by the Holy Spirit and then practically lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at some verses, and I'm not going to argue the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism. I'm not going to argue the issue of eternal salvation or the issue of once saved, once lost. I'm not, that's not the issue that I'm talking about here. Most sides have verses that they go to and they back and they argue with all day long. But what I want to bring awareness to is this. Those of us who say that we are saved, are we really practicing what we say that we are? Or are we deceiving ourselves? In First Timothy, let me get it up there. Go to my channel, would you back there, please? I'm going up here. You should be able to grab it back there. First Timothy 4 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. But what it says is that they will abandon the faith. Now we can argue back and forth that those are individuals that were never saved, those were just religious people, those were people who didn't understand what salvation. You go into all kinds of arguments, but the scripture just simply says. They're going to abandon the faith. And we're seeing that more and more in America today. Oftentimes we ask, what happened to England? What happened to France? Those who called themselves Christians just slowly abandoned and the churches just begin to close. So you have less than even less than a 10% of the population that goes to church. He goes on, he says in, first, in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election. What? Sure. Now, who is he putting that responsibility on? Because the Lord says the heart can be deceitfully wicked, and who can know it but who? But God. And you can think you know your heart, but your heart will lie to you. And you need to ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. And there'd be anything in there that is not pleasing to you. Lord, you fix it. You bring it. But he says, you're the one that has to make sure that your calling and your election is sure. That you know that you know that you know that you're saved. If people got to convince you that you're saved, you're not saved. Second Peter 2, 21 and 22. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Whether they sat under it, whether they just heard it, whether it's in the house. It could be like in Joshua, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and bring your children to church and you make them come in and sit and listen. But see, they hear and they know, but it never went where? Into the heart. 
is never something that they themselves confess and believe. And it says it's better for them not to have never known or to never have heard it than to have known it and then do what? Turn their backs on the sacred commands that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. And we find that that people who say that they're saved go right back into the world and they're doing what? All these worldly things. And yet they're saying they're saved. There is one thing that we can be sure of. And God speaks of it in Revelation. You cannot be cold and hot at the same time. And if you're lukewarm, he confessed that he'll spit you out of his own mouth. So either you're going to be hot or you're going to be cold. You're going to be real or you're not going to be. And Christians today who call themselves Christians or maybe young in the faith, you're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity, one foot in heaven, one foot out here in hell. You, you want the best of both worlds and you can't get it. It won't happen. For no man can serve two masters. It, it's not going to happen. He goes on in Hebrews 3, 10 and 12. That is why I was angry with them, with that generation, talking about Israel. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. Their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my ways. So I declare them on oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Now here comes the warning. See to it, brothers, who have that responsibility. We do we got to examine. we got to look at ourselves. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You have to see to that. No one else can really look at you and judge you, but you got to look carefully at who. Yeah. You gotta know that. Every man who is married knows he really loves his wife or not. Sometimes I kid my wife. I'm married before the morning money. I haven't found it yet though. <laughs> That's why I'm still around. But, <laughs> but I love it. You're the one who gotta answer that question. He says. An unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. When you look at it, a lot of our young people, they don't have a heart that loves the Lord. Though they may say it with their lips, yet when you see their action, you see their behavior, and they, they, they learn that from a lot of us older people. Because we're saying one thing and they're watching us do what? So the blame's not all theirs. Because what they're looking at is this. How sincere are we about the things of the Lord? And if we're not sincere about it, why should they be? 
If we can't give up this or that for the Lord, why should they do it? See to it, brothers, that none of you has a, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the Lord. In John 3, 6, 1 John 3, 6, says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. You cannot be a Christian and Christ living in you and you're living in them and you continue in sin. It's not saying you cannot sin. But it's not going to be an everyday practice for you. It's not going to be where you're kept out at. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's a powerful little statement. Now, we can throw it out and toss it out. And we can say, well, hey, you don't know my heart. You're right. I don't know your heart regardless. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Who got to look at yourself? You do. And what's the test that you're going to give yourself? That you might know that you really love the Lord. What's the test? Are you willing to sacrifice everything? Are you willing to give up everything? Are you willing to really be loyal and faithful? To What's the test that you give yourself to prove that you really love the Lord? And that you're in the faith. And he says, test yourself. You have to do that. You have to sit down and really look at yourself. And ask yourself where you are in the Lord. Unless, of course, you fail the test. Matthew 7, 22, 23. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You sat in church, you sung in the choir, you was on the usher board, you was the trustee, you were this, and you did that. But that day when you stand before God, and God say to you, I never knew you. But Lord, I was in the church, but you were not in me. You were not in me. Lord, I was singing your praises. I was in the choir. Yeah, but you were singing to be seen and to be heard. But you thought you had a wonderful voice. But you were not really singing for my glory or for me. That's why scripture says, whatever you do, you do it as unto who? Unto the Lord. And you do it how? With all your might and all your strength. You don't fall short of it. Salvation is too serious to be careless with. And I hate to say it, in our generation, in our time, we're not very serious about salvation. It's almost like the word love today. Everybody in love with somebody. And we got love so mixed up, we think love is sex. So we call sex love. With love, understand this. It only takes one person. With love, it only takes one person. Intimacy takes two. 
intimacy it takes two. But to love, it only takes one. You can love people that don't love you. How do we know that? Is God demonstrating his love towards us while we were yet his enemies and we're not in love with him. But to be intimate, it takes two people sharing their love with each other. Salvation is too serious to be careless with. And we are a people today that are very reckless with our salvation. We are people who are saying we're saved, but we want to walk on the edge. We are people who are willing to say we're saved, but we don't want to have any commitment or any loyalty or any faithfulness. The way in which many of us are treating our relationship with Christ is why we're seeing even in the Christian circle today so many divorces. Because there's not a faithfulness, a loyalty, or a commitment to the one who you have said, I love. I love. We don't take our salvation seriously. In 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I know in whom I believe. I know in whom I believe. Do you really know who you believe? Who you're believing in? Do you really know? Or do you just know the name but you're not in a relationship? See, a lot of people know the name of Jesus, but they're not in a relationship with Jesus. Follow me closely here. You hear what I'm saying? See, you can know somebody and you can tell somebody, yeah, I know them, but you're not in a what? A relationship with them. And many Christians are saying they're saved and they're in a relationship with the Lord and in reality they're not in a relationship. Because the very evidence of that is that they really don't know him. They don't know his character. They don't know what he's like. They don't spend any time with him. But Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. What did Paul trust? Himself. 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 And all that he possessed and all that was dear to him, he entrusted. Salvation makes something beautiful of our lives if we really understand it. You cannot be saved and look like a harlot. You cannot be saved and look like some raggedy bum that don't have a thing. Salvation changes us. Salvation beautifies us. Salvation transforms us. Salvation, if we really understand it. You cannot be saved and looking like the world. You cannot be saved talking like the world. You cannot be saved acting like the world. You cannot be saved and talking about you can take it off and put it on. It don't work that way. It does not work that way. The meaning of salvation 
The Greek word of salvation strictly means deliverance. Period. Strictly deliverance. The Greek word. The word Savior does not really come from the Greek. It comes from the Latin. Which is part of salvation. But the Latin simply denotes one being safe. That when you speak of being saved, you are safe. That when you speak of being saved, God is taking you on as his responsibility. And he keeps you safe from any harm or danger or anything that will separate you from him. He keeps you safe. He's that father figure that keeps his children safe. If any of you fathers have children, what will you do to keep your child safe? That's God. That's God. In Latin, salvation, and even the word Savior comes out of the Latin word, sabbath, which is Savior. And it simply means safe. It is the idea of immunity from harm or danger, that nothing's going to harm you. Nothing's going to harm you that's in this world. And that God keeps you from all danger then. That's what God's doing. That's why when we talk about salvation, it is not yet a finished work. But when we see Christ face to face, it becomes a finished work. But why we are yet in this world, we are still being saved. We are saved, yet we are still being saved. We're being saved from the elements and the dangers of this world, from anything that will harm us. It is to rescue from all harm. Salvation is the process. And we need to understand that, that salvation is a process in which we're going it's a process by which we are delivered from all that would prevent us from attaining the highest good that God has prepared for us. It keeps us from failing. It keeps us and it safeguards us from all the demonic foes that want to do harm to us or to our family. In Daniel 10, 13, it speaks about the king of Persia, which is Satan at that point. That he interfered with Michael the archangel bringing a message to Daniel. And it took a little extra time. And you need to understand something. Because God says it even unto Peter. Satan desires to take you and shift you like what? Like wheat. Satan wants to harm each and every one of us. But the only thing that keeps us is the salvation of our God, who keeps us from the dangers of the enemy. Now understand if you move out from underneath the covering of God, you're free game to Satan. You need to understand that. You're free game for Satan. And that's where Christians become puzzled. 
Because when we begin to see somebody else acting like the world, talking like the world, dressing like the world, speaking like the world, doing the worldly things, our, we scratch our heads and we ask this, were they really saved? We're, we're scratching our heads and we're saying, is this just one of these little failures that they're going through? We're, we're scratching our heads. But what really is, in our heart, is this, are they really saved? Are they really saved? Go with me to Psalms 84 11. Now go ahead all the verses so we want to keep moving. Psalm 84 11. He says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Now catch what he says. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk is blameless. So you hear the Christian sometimes who is really serving the Lord, really faithful. You hear him saying, Lord, I've been praying. Lord, I've been praying, asking you to do this, do that, Lord. Help me in this. Help me. And look like the Lord's not come. Understand, demonic forces are there at work also, trying to block what God is going to do. But yet, they cannot stop it. May slow it up. But they're not going to stop it. If you really saved, every good gift that God has for you, you're going to receive it. You're going to receive it. You all know Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are called by God. Again, that good thing. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift coming from where? From above. And then in John 3, 17, John the Baptist says, the only way that man increases his goods in life is that God increases it for him. That God causes the increase in his life. That God does it. Salvation comes to us of who he is. If you miss this, you're not going to really understand salvation. Because salvation is God revealing his love to us. Go to 1 John 4, 8 and 9. 1 John 4, verses 8 and 9. And understand, everything that God does for us, nobody makes him do it. Nobody makes him do it. Nobody forced him to do it. John, senior John, why do you go to work every day? Let's take them away. Why do you go to work every day? Yeah. But they give you a large incentive to go. And that's what we need to understand. If it wasn't for Junior and all, that incentive wouldn't be there. Mark 
Why do you suffer the things you go through? <laughs> I didn't say cry. I just <laughs> Oh, good thing she looked at you. <laughs> Remember, you got to eat her food. <laughs> but are they an incentive? Yeah. When it really boils down, you will discover they're an incentive. But the main reason is, I love you. I love her. When you see that young man out there guy playing basketball, what happens in your heart? Yeah, there's no words to really explain it. It's the joy, it's the pride, it's the thing of saying, that's my son. That's God. That's God. When he sees you acting like Christ, that's my daughter, that's my son. And, he, and it all comes out of this area of just love. First John 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, Whoever does not love does not know God. Because, this is what he says, because God is what? Love. Not that love is God. I don't want you to get it twisted. But the characteristic of God is love. And everything that God does for us comes out of his love. Just like that father goes to work every day, brings that check home every day, who sacrifices every day. Now, I don't want to leave mothers out today either because they do it just as well. Because they love those children, they love that family. God loves the family of God. God loves his children. God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. How did he show his love? He sent his one and only son. Then it's his promises. It's the promises that God has made to us. That we would receive a savior. And that he will provide for us what we have need of. It's his promises. So salvation comes to us because of who he is and the promises that he has made unto us about a Savior coming. Now the source of salvation. Jesus Christ brings salvation to us, but he's not the source of salvation. He really given to us. The source of salvation. I want you to really catch this now. First is the love of God. And you catch in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. That God loved us. God loved us. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody made him come up in the plan. And it's not just God the Father. It's God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God that loves us. And therefore, we see all three of them playing a part in this plan of salvation. That's why Jesus in John 6 said, No man cometh unto me unless he's drawn by the Father. So you've got to be drawn to the Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ then introduces you back to the Father. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes in. He fills you and he teaches us of the things of the Father and of the Son. That the triune God then interacts in this work of salvation. But the source of salvation is love. If you take, and we ask this question today, why is it that fathers can run off and leave their children and never call to see how they're doing or never even visit their children? Only thing they can say, I got some children on the East Coast, West Coast, down South. I got some children in Akron, you know, somewhere in North Akron. I got some children. Let me ask you this question. Can you believe that that child believes that that father loves him? Not at all. Not at all. And that's one of the reasons we have a lot of young men who are angry. Because they've never known the love of a father. And they never have that image of a father. And therefore, they don't know how to be a father. But they've never been taught. God created us. And there's a difference now. In his creating us, he still took on a responsibility because he gave us free will. And in that free will, he knew that we would sin. But then he sets out this plan to be able to redeem us from that sin and give us a right not to call him creator, but to call him father, Abba Father in Romans 8. Not just creator, but Abba Father. So God says, yes, I gave you life. And the earthly father can say, yes, I gave you life and took off. And you will never know his life. And God could have gave us life and just ran off. And left us in our sin and in our misery. But he was a father. And he knew what we had need of. And he provided what we had need of. And that's the work of a father. In providing what his family or his children had need of. And it demonstrates his love for us in the provisions that he provides in taking care of our needs. The second thing is the wisdom of God. Because in 1 Corinthians, he talks about where's the wisdom of this world? That it's the wisdom of God that came up with this plan called salvation. It's not a plan of man. But it's the wisdom of God before the foundations of this earth was ever formed. God's wisdom laid out this plan called salvation. And what man often calls salvation, foolishness. And those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and the pardon of their sins call it foolishness. So when you hear some people speak about Jesus feeding the 5,000, they'll tell you, how foolish is that? How could that ever happen? How dumb is that? Or Jesus walking on the water, how foolish is that? 
How dumb and stupid that is to believe something like that. Or Jesus healing the leopard. And in Melvin's class in Sunday school, they're talking about the crowd following. And as they're talking about the leopard there, I ask myself, why didn't they pick up stones and throw it? Because at that moment, Jesus was there, but normally the Jews would pick up stones and yell out, unclean, unclean. But because Jesus was there, and then the marvel of what would take place, not only what they saw, because see, the priest got upset when they saw Jesus heal just a withered hand and make a hand straight. What did they do when he touched the leopard? That was unclean. The wisdom of God. And I'm going to go through them just because of time's sake. The verses that you didn't have, they're there. Because, see, the cross is foolishness unto man. The cross is foolishness unto man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 21 and 24. 1 Corinthians 21 and 24. 1 Corinthians. For since the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Through the preaching of the word, he brings salvation. Through the preaching of the word. Verse 24, he said, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and catch it, the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. The source of salvation is God's love, his wisdom, and third is his power. His power. Go to Romans 1, verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. It's God demonstrating his power that he can take a sinful individual and transform them. What prison can't do, God is able to do. And he just brings out the reality of it. God's power. And understand, if you're really saved, it is God's power working in you to change you. Now, this is one of the problems we're having with salvation. We have a lot of Christians who are acting like Pharisees. So what they do is this. We make our own rules up. And we follow our own good rules. And as long as we're following our own good rules, we declare that we're saved. But their rules never coincide really with scripture. So they're acting like the Pharisees. That's why the Lord says, unless your behavior exceeds that of the Pharisees, but the Pharisees made up their own rules. And there's a lot of people saying they're saved and they're making up their own rules. 
And they're saying, I can do this, and I can do that, and I can live this way, and I can act this way, and I can do this and that. And it's totally against scripture, but in their mind, they made up their own set of rules, they made up their own gospel, they made up their own writings, and they said, this is how I'm going to live. And God said, that's not acceptable. There's no way God would have taken time to send us 64 books for us to throw them away and say, I don't have to live that. God would have never allowed Jesus Christ to go to the cross if he would have just said, hey, you come up with your rules and as long as you follow your rules and live your rules, I'll accept you. Won't happen. God will not move. That's why God says not one word. Heaven and earth may pass away, but not one not the smallest letter in Greek, not the smallest thing in the Greek will disappear. Because God is that serious about his word. And that his word will stand. And why will it stand? Because it represents his name and his name is holy and his word is holy. And you will not trample on his word. You will pay for it. You will not disregard his word and live the way you think you want to live and say that you're saved. Because everything in scripture will shout out against you. Salvation is the love of God. It's the wisdom of God. And it's the power of God at work in our lives. If you're really saved. That's why you'll hear some people talk about young women and young men that they have a wisdom beyond their age, beyond their mature, because it's God demonstrated them his power in them. You'll hear folks ask them, Well, how did you make it through this? And how did this happen to you? And, 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 and how did you get where you are? It is God doing the promoting. It is God that is setting up because God takes down kings and set up kings. It is God who is moving in your life. That old song, that old gospel song, How I Got Over, you may not know it, but there's one answer to it, God. That old songwriter wrote, Going Up the Rough Side of the Mountain, yes, life can be rough, but God can get you up the mountain. Salvation is the love of God, the wisdom of God, and the power of God being demonstrated in the person's life who says they're saved. Close out with this. And we're going to go through this whole series about salvation. And um, next week we're going to look at the neglecting of this salvation. He says, how do you neglect? And there's a two-letter word that is so important. So. So. Esso. So great a salvation. You find it in John 3, 16, emphasizing something. God so loved. It's different for me to say, I love Elaine. But when I put it this way, 
I love and learn so much. That really puts what? Value to it when I think. When you put that little two-letter word, so, it makes it emphasize and it stands out. And he says, how do you, how do you disregard or neglect so great a salvation? And that's what we're going to look at next week. But hopefully you plan just to stay with us for a while. Because if you miss one even a series, you're going to be lost a little bit. In the work of salvation, there is no weakness on God's part. And we need to understand that. Failure in salvation is not God's failure. It's not that God can't keep you. It's not that God can't keep you from every harm and danger that the demons of this world want to do to you. It's not that God can't protect you. If your child decides to run away from home, what can you do about it? What can you do about it? You really can't do a thing. Even the police then got tired of it. You can't even report it until after what? Yeah. Okay. And after that time, in 24 hours, that child can be out of the state if somebody's kidnapped. In 24 hours, what could have happened to your son or your daughter in 24 hours? All because they decided they're going to leave out from under your coverage because they don't want to be what? Obedient. And when we as Christians run away from home and Satan grabs hold of us, there's no telling what going to take place. And I can't blame God. Nor can that child go back and say, Dad, you didn't protect me. Well, you ran away. Well, you should have been. Well, you took off. I can't do no more than provide a safe haven for you. I can't do no more than direct you what's the best way to come home from school, even help you to pick your friends that are really friends. I can only help direct you and guide you, but who has to implement it? Who has to do it? See, my kids, you say, Dad, you're too strict. You're not learning nothing down on the corner. Well, they weren't allowed to go down on the corner or stand. There's nothing on the corner. You want to stand somewhere, stand in the driveway. Look down the corner. <laughs> but seriously, in salvation, there is no failure in God. The failure is in us who confuse, who confess we are saved, but are not willing to live like they're saved. The good news is simply this. The good news is that it doesn't have to be. Failure doesn't have to be in our life. It doesn't have to be. Because of the love, the wisdom, and the power of God, 
which has been invested into the salvation we possess. If our children would look at the investments that fathers make into them, if I could have had that $1,100 a month that Elaine and I were paying to put some folks through college, I'd be all right today. If we could have had all the money that it took to buy shoes for kids and from the time they were born to the time they were 18 years old, I'd be all right. If I could just have the money that, I did not say that, that I supplied them toilet tissue with, I'd be all right. But kids don't look at the investment that you make into the home or into their lives. And therefore, it doesn't mean anything. And for us as Christians, it's sad to say, we don't look at the investment that God has made into our salvation that it would be meaningful to that we would value it. That it would be something precious to us. Because we understand the investment that God has made for each and every one of us. Our salvation has been paid for by the blood of He says that we've been purchased by Christ. It costs God something to grant you salvation. It costs God something for us to live a saved life. Do you value the investment that God has made and salvation that he has given to you freely. When I was a child at home, I never paid rent. I never sat down at the table and had to pay for my meal at home. I never paid my mom for doing my laundry. I never paid anybody for honoring my clothes. I never paid anybody for keeping a clean house for me to come into or bring my company into. What have you paid God for your salvation? I hope I'm helping you to think about this thing called salvation. Because that's what we want to do in the next couple of weeks. To somehow awaken us anew because we just go around and I'm saved, I'm saved, don't even know the value of it. You know, don't even know what we have. God emptied heaven for you and I to be saved. 
and we prepared the paper of this table, this table is a reminder of what God suffered for. Could you imagine a father hearing his daughter yell for help? Somebody's hurting her. He can hear her. He can even see it. He can see a man raping his daughter. He can see a man beating his daughter. He can see a man abusing his daughter. But he can't do anything. Put Christ on the cross and hear what Christ said. Father, why have you forsaken me? And yet God sees it. He hears it. And it said it became dark. It's almost like if God is saying, I don't want to see my son go through this. And it just became pitch. because of what was happening to his son. And yet we so Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and we want to remind ourselves of how rich a salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to examine our own hearts. We want to look at our own hearts. We don't want to look at our neighbor's heart. We don't want to look at somebody. We want to look at our own. And we want to be able to see, Lord, that we truly love you and that we're truly saved. And that we can truly say, Lord, I know in whom I believe because of the relationship I have with you, the intimacy I have with you, that, Lord, is not just a word that I say, but it's a word that has depth. It's a word that has meaning. It's a word that has value. I'm saved. And I know what it costs you to be able to secure my salvation. It wasn't with gold and silver and precious stones, but it was with the precious blood of your son that you purchased my salvation. Lord, help us as we go through this in the next two, three months, talking about salvation, to grab hold of it anew and afresh. And to be a people who are sincere about being saved. And to understand salvation far more than just a fire insurance or something that keeps me out of hell. But salvation is a life that is lived that glorifies you. That salvation is a work that you're doing in me, in keeping me from all harm and danger or anything that would separate me from you. That salvation is precious and valuable. 
to me. Renew it, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. As the ushers come, we're going to just thank God for his loving kindness unto us. The history of Ackland Lions Fellowship is not so much what we give, but as God blesses. And it's amazing at what God does through this little work. That God somehow continues to just minister to people. People who just walk in off the street and we spend time talking to them. People who we meet daily that we share with. And the things that God is allowing after a nice fellowship to do. Father, we pray that, Father, that as we give, we give rejoicing. We don't give grudgingly. We don't even give, Lord, so much out of duty. But, Lord, we give out of obedience and we give out of love and we give out of a desire to be a blessing to your work. 